if you ask as a manager yourself, how do I judge my senior engineer? The first thing you need actually as a company is come to terms, what does it mean to be a junior, intermediate, senior staff engineer? something like employee terrorism, right? So I take, for example, my code base as hostage. I make myself indispensable. I write so shitty code that no one, that nobody than me can actually um, work on this code base. Three, two, one. Oh yeah, where's my cup? Good, good point. So here's my cup. Three, two, one. Welcome to the Innovation Engineer Podcast, your favorite place for picking brains of your favorite engineers. So grab your nerdiest mug, fill it with your beverage of choice and enjoy. My name is Tarek. And my name is Vashi. And today we are going to answer the first question from one of our readers, viewers, listeners, whatever you want to call them, actually. And this one was from Art. And he asked, how do you actually judge a senior engineer? So not like when you interview them, but let's assume you are like a leader in your company, a team lead, an engineering manager, um, whatever you want to call it. And now it's your turn in judging like your engineers. So like junior, senior, whatever. He especially said, uh, how do you judge senior engineers? But I would like open the topic up a little bit in, in, in general, like how do you judge engineers? Right, right. And uh, the first thing that popped into my mind was I, I tried to remember the things that I had to do in the past to impress my superiors, where um, some metrics were decided on how I was actually uh, able to earn, for example, my uh, flexible salary uh, portion, right? And uh, usually we had these um, these annual goals or, or quarterly goals where I had to do three presentations or read a book and then write an article about that. And if I checked all these check marks, this was then uh, the point where my superior said, oh yeah, you performed well and now you earned your, your flexible salary. But if I now remember this and I reflect on that, this was kind of a training for me as a, let's say, junior developer. It was not really a measurement of performance. It was just like homework, giving the junior developer homework to take a look um, outside of the box, doing some presentations because he's very introverted. And so he has to do something on stage. Um, and uh, if, you, if we talk about senior developers, this is, of course, not, let's say, appropriate, or I would say it's not appropriate to give the senior developer this cheap kind of homework. So he is a good developer if he's doing three talks on stage or something like that. It does not feel right. What, what, what was your, um, your experience in the past with these kind of things? Very easy. So if you're working in a waterfall environment, it's lines of code. If you're working agile, it's story points. So one developer doing more story points is obviously the better one, right? <laughs> I hate this so much. I hate this so much because I, you're right. I, I heard about that, but never in terms of performance review. But this was always the metric from the product owner, of course. Yeah, and and so you are not performing well because the number of story points that you that you burned down um, is is bad. Yeah, and I hated this so much because my answer was always story point is like an imaginary metric. This is this is something that we come up with. We we invent like this number according to the story. So improving my performance would be to simply put more story points on these on, on these stories. Yeah. So there's a very, very small story. Let's estimate this with a 50 so that I can get my race next year. Yeah. And so from one sprint to the next, I, I uh, quadrupled my throughput because I simply imagine more story points per story. Right. Yes. So. <laughs> One tip for anybody out there, your like burn down chart and also your story points and everything. This is just for your dev team. Never show it outside of management because uh, never show it to management because they will think, oh, this is something I can manage with. That's that's wrong. This is like an internal number. But I was only joking <laughs> half when I said this like story points and so okay. So, you know, I'm a freelancer. Uh, and before that, I worked 10 years for agencies and so on. So I switched projects very often. So the first thing what I do when I come into an existing project, like Brownfield project, how you call it, is look into the commit history and then doing some statistics and so on to see how active is which developer. And normally, um, 
So I come into a new team or like a new project, like 10 developers, and then I do an analysis and I could already tell you which two or three developers actually already the rockstars and doing the, the, the major lifting. So which are the senior engineers? Just by looking at the commit history and then maybe it's the commits and what they do, how they write commit messages. So obviously it's not lines of code, but the uh, git commit history can tell you a story. Obviously it's a history, right? Yeah. So the other, the other thing is, um, the correct answer actually, in my opinion, depends on the culture you have in your company, because what is culture? It's actually um, how you do things in your company, how you promote people, how you do meetings, how often do you uh, do meetings, how you come to agreements, how you do decisions and how you promote people. So there are different companies with different cultures. And obviously what they're looking for in a, let's say, senior engineer is different from company to company. So I have seen a lot of differences like between German companies where they have different team setups. So for example, if you have a traditional team setup where say you have a front-end team and a back-end team and a lot of startups or smaller companies still have this kind of setups like a mobile team, a front-end team, a back-end team, and maybe a special team for integrations or API. And even companies who grow like 60 to 100 people, they start creating things like a platform team or a foundation team where they put their most senior engineers into doing some kind of groundwork. That would require a special episode, but obviously those and those kind of platform teams uh, would be judged differently from their requirements to the job than people on the front-end team or on the app team, or who is a senior. They are all senior engineers, but you would judge them differently. That's, that's culture is a big fact in this. So um, if you have a team, for example, where you say this is more like the agile prototype where if a cross-functional team who's responsible for a product area or for a part of a user journey, let's say this team is responsible for the whole user checkout. So the whole journey when the user decides I want to buy and they do all the payment processing, the reminder emails and so on. This is, this is part of the journey to reduce um, churn and other things. Um, obviously, what's senior engineer in there would be judged differently than you have uh, like a poor, poor backend team who's just like doing backend stuff because they don't really have touch points with the user while the others have. So requirements would be different. Sure. But let's uh, maybe go back to the first thing that you said so that we can um, make sure that everyone understands it. And of course that I understand what, what you mean. I think the first thing that you said um, was... Uh, the the analysis of the GitHub commits. If you take a look at the history, um, and th this is actually a good thing to learn something about the developer. But of course, when you judge what you are seeing, you have to take a look at like the the quantity and quality, right? And quantity not in terms of counting, but understanding his routine and um, his his like be behavioral patterns. Yeah, um, because. You can, of course, do a commit every five minutes. This might be good. This might be bad. You can do a commit once per week or a reintegration of your branch. And um, this does not necessarily give you like a quick definitive answer about what he's actually doing there because this depends on how the team is, is working on the code. And in terms of quality, the same thing, right? You have... Uh, you, you might have very different styles of code in different teams depending on the purpose of the code. It might be very heavily tested because it's in a, in a high risk environment uh, where we, we, you have like uh, four times the amount of lines of code uh, for testing and uh, QA purposes than the code itself. Or you need to be very quick and agile and that's why you have like very, very small modules and micro architecture and maybe no test at all because uh, the team works in, in like a five minute bug fix behavior and the uh, continuous deployment um, because speed is way more uh, valuable than, than quality. And so um, you can learn a lot uh, through uh, going through the GitHub history, but only if you know the context and if you know what the team is working on and how the team culture is working. And now I use the word culture, which is like the, the other thing that you said. Um, did, I, did I get that right? Or yes. did you have other thoughts? No, no, that's right. In the end, it requires technical knowledge. So not everyone, like in most engineering managers I met in like the past few years, haven't coded for years. So they will have a way harder time than me, who do it on a daily uh, does it on a daily basis to to really get information out of this. But I still believe um, if you are like on a high a high level engineer, there's this Dunning Kruger effect, right? You need the same kind of skills. Um, 
that the other person has to, to actually judge it. So um, I'm arrogant. So I say my uh, technical skills are like brilliant uh, as are my soft <laughs> skills, obviously. So I'm able to judge other people who are in my skill level. So obviously I will have a harder time judging people who are better than me. Haven't met those yet, but I heard they exist. Yeah. So, <laughs> so but this is not what an average engineering manager can do. So the other thing is... Uh, what we said, different roles. Obviously, in a team, you will have a junior engineer. For me, a junior engineer is someone who cannot work unsupervised. They need supervision like uh, from some other engineer. So they will always ask questions. They're very uncertain. They don't know where to do changes. So they work best in pairs or with like a mentor. So obviously, those are judged differently. Then you have the, let's say, intermediate engineer. And I have met people who work for 20 to 30 years in the industry who I would still call not senior engineers. Obviously, they have the title senior engineer because they have 20 years of experience, but they lack all the soft skills and other things you need as a senior engineer. They're very good. They have a very deep technical knowledge, but this is just a good engineer. We talked about this uh, in like episode two, what makes a senior engineer. Right. So yes. if you're interested in my opinion, look it up in the other episode. And then you have like a real senior engineer. And then later on, you have like a staff engineer. Obviously, seniority... Um, I remember like 10 years ago, there was like senior, maybe system architect, and then you would require to become manager. But nowadays you have way more differences, way more levels, actually, or a higher ladder you can climb to. So obviously for a staff engineer, I have different requirements. And even for a senior engineer, there can be like two senior engineers who are both great, but do totally different things. So for example, think of one senior engineer who... Um, creates value for the company. That's, that's an important fact. So if I think about judging people, I always think about how much value do they create for the company. So one senior engineer could be a great technician and could be like the one actually carrying on his shoulders the whole technical architecture. And the other one could be like an evangelist. So he's so good in like getting people to do talks. He's so much full of energy. He's writing a lot of blog posts. He's like kind of the face of the team uh, and so on. And another may be really good and he's half the product owner. So he's really good in understanding the business requirements and like taking the other developers at a leash and saying, okay, maybe this refactoring is not the best idea because you're not creating business value. So he's like... Uh, The, the good voice of the team saying, okay, think about the business, think about the users. So all three would be valuable, but doing way different things. And on the yeah. other thing, other hand, there is like this, again, from, from Netflix, uh, it's in every Netflix culture slide deck or book about the Netflix culture and how they do it, is the so-called keeper test. So if this one developer would say uh, he wants to quit and wants another job, what would you actually do to keep him, right? And if the answer is, yeah, it's okay, he was only an average Joe, uh, maybe it's okay that he leaves and makes place uh, for, for another one to develop further, then maybe this is like already a sign for you. If you ask, if you're a manager and ask yourself, if you would quit, what would I do? How sad would I be? So you get at least your first gut feeling out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, right, right. There's one one aspect that just popped into my mind, um, which kind of continues this discussion from what makes a senior engineer, because you just uh, like described this hierarchy of going from junior to senior to what, what was the last Steph one? Staff engineer. Like, like, yeah. And um, th this is a very restricting way of thinking because you have this linear path of uh, increasing your, your skill level or your your ranking so that you have to, that you achieve the next uh, step Th there's one thing that i usually have in my mind um that kind of contradicts this thing because you can add value in different ways to the team and this is i think one of the most um hot hottest discussed topics within teams that someone who is very like um, public speaking and going out there um, is trying to get judged for the same metrics like the introverted engineer who might provide more value in terms of billable hours um, but is not visible and so it's sometimes very hard to compare these different aspects that they provide value um, by putting them into this linear path of of hierarchy and one thing that that I really and like not a joy, but what helps me is this model, and I'm not sure what the actual term for this is, where you where you uh, put the the engineers in this 
um, matrix of multipliers and diminishers. I, I read this somewhere, but I, I did not find it spontaneously on, on the web when I prepared for this episode, um, where you say, usually if you get like a junior developer, as you just said, uh, into the team, he's uh, sub subtracting resources from the team because you need to have the other engineers helping this junior engineer, training this junior engineer. Um, and so this pulls resources from the team. You could say, oh, it's a bad thing to get junior engineers in, but usually it's a good thing to train them because later they will return um, the, the, the value, right? Um, and the same thing if you have a trained engineer, he adds resources to the team. If you have a second engineer, in theory, like let's say for everyone who listens, I'm doing the, the quotation marks, the air quotes, um, he's adding like one resource. So um, you have two team members, so you double the output. It's like, let's say the, the mathematical model. I, let's let's strip out the, the team dynamics and everything. Um, but the most important thing is that you can have also this so-called multiplier. So someone who enters the team and he's not only adding himself as a resource, but for some magical reason, everybody becomes better when he is in, he or she is in the team. So this multiplying effect. So with his skills of team building and active listening and being compassionate and motivating the others, it might be that he enters the team and suddenly the team output quadruples simply by having him in the team the other way around as you just said what happens if this person quits yeah, it might be that the team morale and team infrastructure and team motivation completely collapses because he was the driving force of the team he was the kid that connects everyone and actually multiplied the the individual um the individual power of of the developers into a, a huge thing right and this is like the multiplicator that you want to keep at any cost yeah but in the same time there are these diminishers people who are entering a team and suddenly nothing goes anymore people stop working because they say yeah it does not make any sense because he is destroying everything and he will delete everything i do and uh, by not working at all i'm making the team more performant because if he's doing everything on his own um yeah it's, it's better because uh, he will he will just criticize everything that i do and these things right so someone who enters the team and suddenly the team performance goes to zero and at the same time if you remove this person from the team it might be that the team like comes back to the track and um, even though this is a very of course a very very simplified model i really see these patterns in people who joining teams and leaving teams and I, I try to see the effect of them in this team context and sometimes it's really just the the muscle yeah he is taking the, the the number of tasks that I give him and so he's carrying his own weight or he comes in and I have to uh, like explain everything to him and so he's binding resources or of course this multiplicating factor or the diminishing factor where you say okay this is the golden employee or the golden developer and he's doing everything in this team context better or I have to get rid of him because when he's here nothing goes anymore. Uh, do, do you know this, mo this model? Uh, yes, I've heard about it. And um, I also, different people I worked with in the past as diminishers come into mind. So there were multiple so-called senior engineers or engineers who are actually brilliant. So they know a lot of stuff. Yes. So we once had this uh, one of the first years ago, AWS uh, uh, people who he was very knowledgeable about nearly everything in engineering. AWS, he, he did like build his whole architecture for like a system on its own, but he was at the same time toxic. He was an asshole. Like, yes. uh He was making bad jokes about others. So he, he looked, he was like a control freak. So he looked yes. into every commit, into every pull request, even if it was assigned to him uh, and made um, comments which are not okay. And then like verbal comments were like, where did you even learn to code? <laughs> like this like <laughs> elitism stuff he said to others, yes. even to junior engineers or like to others. This is not appropriate. He was re really, really good. He, uh, he pulled his weight on its own, but I would say, If you say diminisher, he was one. Obviously, this was a hard call because he was the most knowledgeable person on the team. So in this situation, I would say it was um, like he brought as much to the team as he took. So it was in between. So if his personality would change and he was, would be coached right, so with the right mentality, then he may become a real senior engineer. So that's the thing. And the other point is, um, as I said, different hierarchy levels. So you judge them differently. So you said introvert pulling the weight in the team. Yes, but only to up to a specific point. There is a point where you, when you become a multiplier, you cannot do it as an introvert. It stops. So if you're a pure introvert, 
like there is a cap on how good you become, how can become, and you would need to go out of your comfort zone. I have seen a lot of introverts who train this and maybe they're still introverts are like getting energy from being on their own and they need it, but they learn to also like push themselves out of the comfort zone and learn the skills. So one thing is like speaking up in meetings. So from a um, senior engineer, programming is not about writing code. It's about creating business value. I said this so many times. So a senior engineer needs to understand this. And um, in a meeting where there are like product people and stakeholders, he would need to like understand business requirements and have a grasp of the business. So this is a requirement. If you have an engineer who may be really great. So I, I have seen one person comes to mind. He's great. Worked for the same company for 12 years. He's like the, the, uh, the, uh, the pillar actually of the whole company and so much of the architecture comes from him and so and his technical skills are so great he's like maintaining an open source project with 12,000 uh, stars which is also used by that company he's great he's also a great guy what he's not in my opinion is a senior engineer or kind of architect because yes his technical level is excellent but he misses the understanding of the business so he would rewrite every service in go that's currently his favorite language he would rewrite every service in go if you give him the chance and uh, replace anything which is not like super performant just because it's not super performant so it's focused 100 on technical stuff he's still great but not a senior especially not a staff engineer staff engineer thinks about like a whole component from from business wise and other things front end back end and he only thinks about the back end and infrastructure he does not care about front end he does not care about the user or the business yeah but vashi i i have to uh, to jump in for my fellow introverts um the the, the one thing that you said in the beginning uh, really really annoyed me in terms of um introversion does not necessarily mean never speak up or being always quiet and never open your mouth. Um, there are so many times where I have these extrovert developers who, who never shut up, but still are not productive in meetings. Yeah? People who simply speak to hear their own voices and make sure that whatever is said is, is uh, like assigned to them because he is, they, they are speaking up. And this is not necessarily a, a sign of competence or seniority. You might be an introvert, but the one sentence that you give into the meeting is the most important sentence in, in a very like uh, over-exaggerated way. But um, Of course, as an introvert, it might be a, a different challenge to be the voice of reason or be like the, the kid into the team, but it's still possible. So I, I wouldn't necessarily say extroversion is a necessary skill to become a multiplier in a team. You can do this, but in a different way. Yeah, It's communication skills. So yeah. would you consider myself an introvert or an extrovert? I would consider you an extrovert. Okay, I'm not by no means. So Very you, interesting. <laughs> you only got to know me after um, I focused more on like soft skills and other things. So because reading books like The Clean Coder and other great books about becoming more senior. So what I'm like a classical nerd. So uh, like in high school, didn't have many friends, played most of the time video games. Even when I was in university, I played World of Warcraft. Most of my friends were online friends. I had some people I met in university who are like real life friends, but the, the majority of, of my friends were people I met online, I played games with. So I get energy when I'm alone in the night, watch animes, uh, read fantasy books, play video games. That's when I get energy. Each time after I meet with friends, I'm exhausted and I need a break. So when I started as an engineer, I purely focused on technical stuff. Who was, who was not a good engineer, like was in my opinion, the people who could not code well. So I've seen senior engineers who I had a bad opinion about because they talked too much and their code was not good enough. So they didn't read enough books about code quality, in my opinion, and so on. And I said, Yeah, I, I can't, I'm, I'm not good at remembering names. I don't care about names because I only care about code. That was my only and sole focus, the code. Yeah. So, and later on, um, I learned that this is not right. I learned that it's important to remember names. It's important to know your company, even in a big enterprise on a smaller ones that you need to understand how the, the business works that you, I even started like having lunch dates with different people through the company, like whatever role they had from the highest to the lowest, whatever, to learn about what they do and learn more about the company. And I started to do 
and forced myself to do talks, forced myself to write blog posts, even if I wanted to play games. So it was a long journey for me that I was able to stand on a stage. So you only know me as the one who's always on a stage, who's always like, I, I think I talked always a lot because this is like um, a pattern I have uh, from my childhood to get maybe attention or whatever. So I'm talkative, but in the end, this is exhausting for me. And even nowadays, um, I need, really need to force myself to work with my team because the only thing I want to do is shut myself in and just code. So I'm really forcing myself. I'm so often annoyed when someone is messaging me and I'm, okay, take a deep breath, think about it. <laughs> the others can code too, but you're yeah. very good in like being um, a lever for them to enable them. And when you just help them for like five minutes, you can save them maybe a day of work. So your task is to coach others, help people and give them clear directions and show them how things are done correctly. You're not here to coach yourself. Yeah, maybe laying the foundations, helping out and explaining why this is a good foundation, explain why this is good code. So I'm an introvert. This is super interesting and maybe we should have another episode uh, at some point of time in this work psychology way um, because introversion and extroversion is, is so an interesting topic because what everything that you just said um, kind of also fits to me. I am the biggest introvert that I know. Being with people and interacting with people is the most um, energy consuming thing that I can do and I, I, I really have to close myself up to recharge this is really my thing but people come to me and say ah you're you're always on stage and doing all these talks and you're the most extroverted person i know right but that's exactly not the thing it's not that i'm standing on the stage because i'm i'm enjoying being the center of attention or something it's it's always goal oriented i i try to to, to educate people to uh, win clients or to do recruiting or whatever the purpose of this talk is that i'm giving this is always purpose driven it's not that i I'm sitting at home and say, oh, I'm bored. I have to do a talk somewhere because I have to recharge by going to a huge party or something. That's that's not the case. Yeah. And so um, it's it's a very similar path than what, what you just described for me as well. Um, yeah. Okay. But but maybe it's it's necessary to create like a def different definition for mapping introversion and extroversion to seniority or soft skills because i believe that you can have a high degree of soft skills and emotional intelligence by still being introverted right yes. it's, it's not like the one um depends on the other yes it's that's also not the point i had the point is you can be an introvert be in your comfort zone up until one point and you become can become a great engineer But if you want to become a real senior engineer or become way better than you are right now for the company, from, or from the company perspective by creating value, you need to go out of your comfort zone and do stuff which are not typical for introverts. That's actually my point. Yeah, yeah. There's, I, I really like all the points that we talked about and there's barely, there are barely things where, where I would contradict you. Um, everything meets my 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 understanding of seniority and performance measuring. But I believe if we have now managers listening to us or watching us, um, the hard questions after all the soft measurements that we just uh, talked about is how to um, do the actual evaluation, how to quantify the level of things that they are doing, if not using things like story points for example to actually write a performance report or how do how do people call this like annual performance reports yeah. if this is necessary by your corporation or uh, uh, talk about salary raise or comparing salary to other peers or maybe even choose a team lead which might be the the easiest question of, of all of those because we kind of already answered that but in in terms of salary for example uh, the, the 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 employee asked for a salary raise and it would be easy to tie this to things like story points or lines of code but we just established that those are not the hard or not the right measurements to actually measure seniority or progress in terms of your personal development road so do you have an answer for um, writing the, the, the performance report or doing salary raise or um, like raising the hierarchy? Yes, for all three questions, I have answers. So let's first talk about salary. I would personally always recommend to decouple this from the actual review. So a lot of Germans have problems um, kicking out people. So um, I saw this in other countries where 
not in all, but in other some countries, it's easier to fire people, not because of the laws. It's still harder. Uh, it's still hard for, like, example, the Netherlands, uh, but uh, people do it more often. And in Germany, uh, this is like a culture where you, from, from my parents, they started doing their um, kind of training in one company, apprenticeship, actually, and then they stayed there for the whole of their life. And that's a typical pattern. And it's still in, in, in Germany, the average, even an engineer spends in a company as like twice the time period they do in the US. So there's a difference, a big difference. Um, and let's talk about salary. You should always think about if these people leaves, would it hurt me? Yes or no? That's the first question you should ask yourself. If it would be good that the person leaves, give him like a nice package and kick him out. Managers don't do this often enough in Europe. You should do this way more often, kicking people out. I am not... Don't fire randomly, but fire more often. Don't fire the, the least 10%. It's also a bad idea. But be more brave when you see there is like a, a person who is toxic, who's not good for the team, for the company. Try some changes, but in the end, let him go. Give him a lot of money and so he leaves because it's like more valuable. And the other thing is, if you only have people who you want to keep, then think about... Um, their personal market. Don't think about races in terms of, okay, I have like a hundred thousand um, euros or dollars in one bucket to give out as races. That's the bad thing to think about. After COVID, their market is more dynamic than ever because there's more home office and so on. So it's the market that opened up small company from a small town with 50,000 people who only had like their local market as competitors with maybe a small university where they hired everyone from for like very, very cheap. Now it's competing with the biggest all over Europe or partially all over the world especially Europe because it's the same, same time zone, but like you have more, way more competition. So you would need to think about if this person is great for my company, I really need to keep him. How much could this person earn um, from one of my competitors? What's this personal market actually? And that should be your guiding star, how much money you give out. But otherwise, maybe you can keep him for a while. You can do some tricks. But in the end, uh, headhunters becoming so aggressive he may leave on the on the first bump in the road because that's very easy nowadays. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Um, but this means that my salary in, in, in your framework, that my salary is not really bound on my performance, but on the market situation and my competition, right? Yes. So it's, it's, it does not matter what I do in my microcosmos of, of personal performance. My salary will rise or not rise depending on the, the, the market situation of developers out there. Yes, and that's a good thing. So spoiler for what we're talking about next week, the book Drive and Motivational Factors and money is not one of them. It's a hygienic <laughs> factor. And it's way more important what your colleague earns than what somebody else in another company earns. There are a lot of studies. We talk about this next week. And this will mitigate one of those issues. So I also recommend tying um, your like salary to uh, a local benchmark. So in, for example, in Berlin, where we both worked for, for over a decade, um, there are like salary reports. And for example, there were years where the so-called DevOps, like a cloud engineer with AWS knowledge, um, did raise for 5% per year on average. So obviously you should automatically raise every one of your cloud engineers or DevOps engineers. I hate the term DevOps engineers. We could do a, a, its own episode about this topic. So he, he, he or she should get an automatic 5% raise because his personal market did increase. It's really interesting. I did not think about this in this direction. Um, I also know um, this this philosophy of drive that the money that you earn is this um, this hygiene factor. It's enough if you stop thinking and worrying about that, but then it's not really a driving factor. But if I now think about the people who go to the superior and ask for 10% more money because they think um, I'm, I'm, it's time for that. What I take from your argumentation is that these people should not 
start working on uh, on their argumentation regarding their performance but actually do this market research and start threatening their superiors by showing them the numbers um, people in other companies are earning this and think about that i might uh, leave your company if i'm not getting like these 10 percent per year uh, increase because i want to have this in terms of um yeah gratification yeah Managers should actually encourage the people to take calls from attenders and applied other companies and then report back to how they tell them what the benefits of the other company are and how much they would earn because that's the most educational for you as a manager. The mm. manager who's deciding about the salary needs to know the market his people are in and you should always pay by the market. This takes out a lot of factors. It's way easier. It's not like by... I saw in the past people getting races because there are like best buddies with the boss. That's not a good thing. Or they, even if they got a race, they still felt treated unfair because a lot of companies have policies like 15% max race per year. But obviously if there is like a difference in what they are doing in their job and where does the rest, that would be not enough. So I saw cases where engineers were hired for 40,000 euros, did get like a 3% raise or like a 4% raise, but they were actually worse on the market with their experience or skills, let's say 60,000 euros of, of salary a year. And then 15% would not be enough to even reach it. Yeah. And the other thing is like the jump. Like if you do a jump, obviously you should go to your superior and say, okay, this is what I do. I'm actually was hired as, let's say, a very specific front-end engineer who does not get very much, but now I do all this stuff. So obviously I'm now in a different bucket. This would be my personal market. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So it's it's a very cool theory. And actually, I think there's a lot of truth in there. There, I, I think as a hiring manager or like a team lead, this includes another level for me of responsibility because what you are describing of this framework is also something like employee terrorism right so i take for example my code base as hostage i make myself indispensable i write so shitty code that no one that nobody than me can actually um, work on this code base and so the company can't um, can't afford to lose me and this is my argumentation why i need like 20 raise every quarter right it, it's like um, like terrorism, what's it called? Um, demanding money for, for keeping the code alive. I could use this as leverage because if, if the only way that, um, or if the method of getting more money is to threaten my superior that I might be leaving the company and another company uh, hires me and out of fear that I might go, my salary rises, then this is like the incentive for me to make myself indispensable within the team, not because I'm a multiplier in the team, but because the company can't afford to lose me. Yeah. And this would be compatible, would be compatible with the method that you just described. I would not agree. So I would say if this happens, the manager should say, okay, would you earn more money on the other company? And you would say, no, I would earn the, the same, but I would leave. Then you would say, okay, then please leave. You're, I'm not letting you threaten me, obviously. Yeah. So this is, <laughs> again, there is still like a review process, but you, you should never threaten like, or take your code hostage. <laughs> I hope this never happens. Yeah, but for, for this argument that uh, what would happen if this person leaves, this could involve, for example, um, the team would suffer because he's such a valuable employee, but it might also mean that there are other dependencies for me as a person that um, the company can't afford to to um, to lose me. Yes, but this this is the same with every system you would describe. You could always yeah, take yeah. the code hostage and demand more money. You should never do this, obviously. No, of course. And uh, th that was the, the other caveat that I wanted to throw in, that the responsibility of um, the, the leading manager, the, the team lead or whoever is responsible for evaluating these things should also have an eye on this. If the value of this, this person is because he's indisposable, because of his incompetence <laughs> or if he's uh, so, so valuable because he is so well integrated within the team and valued by the colleagues and um, I, I know our time is kind of kind of running short but this is another thing where i struggled in the past where i i wanted to um, include this for example as a metric like the 
not popularity, but the integration in the team and the ability to teach others to being a multiplier. But this would mean that performance review would depend on the performance of other people. So if a person is integrated in a shitty team, for example, and nobody is able to listen or work together and everyone is, just sucks, this would mean that I am not able to um, to prove my value within this team because I'm simply in the wrong team. And this is another thing that sounds unfair, but is also making visible what might be a core problem within the team. Because if you have a team where people can't succeed and can't become better, then it's maybe a good thing to maybe let's, um, what's, how do you say it? Oh, um, not destroy the team, sending the people into other teams or restructuring, um, reassemble people in different co uh, configurations. Because if people say, I can't evolve, I can't become better within this team, then obviously there is a problem within the team and the team should not stay in this method. Yeah. So it's, it's another good thing to see in a team. Yes, but... Uh, in my personal opinion, there are no bad teams. There are only bad leaders. So it could be that they are missing some skill or some responsibility. But in the end, what I would do is not change the team, but change the leader. And this could be the product owner. This could be a tech lead, a team lead or a, another manager. He would be the responsibility. So team performance yeah. depends on leadership. Yes, that, that is true. But what is one thing that this leader needs to do? do if he sees that there are diminishers for example in this team they have to change the setup so what you're just saying is um, you, you move this responsibility to another person um, but the outcome would be the same the people within this team need to be open to work together and follow these guidelines that we just described in terms of being multipliers being able to ask for help, being able uh, to, to cooperate and collaborate with the other developers to build like a stable code base, find um, shared understandings of, of uh, good code and these things. Um, but if you have people who are actively working against this, those are, th these people are toxic. And if you move them to another team structure or fire them or get a good leader into this team who then uh, removes these people, the outcome would be the same. If you have a toxic team and you are part of this team, then of course your performance will suffer from that. And so the, the result would not be, I have to read more books or learn more programming languages, but change the team setup so that I am then able to increase my performance with this better team. Yes, agreed. But this is not the responsibility of the team member, but of the manager. I would say it's a shared responsibility because the team setup is a team thing yeah and of course you need like a strong leader to enable the team to evolve into the structure but it's 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 a if if i have someone who is completely underperforming for a year and this person then comes to me and says yeah i'm an underperformer but that's not my fault the others are so shitty then i would say okay but it is your responsibility to be part of the solution, to work with us, with me as a manager, with me as a lead developer or with whoever, your person of trust, to change the root of this problem. Yeah, I, I, I won't give this person like a raise because, yeah, you're right, it's, it's not your fault that the others are so shitty. It's, you, you need to be part of the solution to actually shine. I would also not agree with the raise. So uh, either I want to keep him or not. If I want to keep him and he does not get his raise... Uh, obviously, he may apply at another company, right? So, and then I would lose him. So I either want to keep him or not. And if I'm not sure, then I should ask myself, okay, not sure means I don't want to keep him because that, that's the same for me. Yeah, and yeah. then again, the rule applies, be more brave in firing people. Yeah, this is, yeah, yeah I, I know. And this one is, I got some uh, critical feedback about uh, these things. We said that in the past, like firing people might be a good thing for you as a company and for the people who, who are fired because you might resolve an inconsistency of people, uh, not an incompatibility between the team or the company and the person. And so it might be that everyone per benefits from from firing but firing is always this very negatively connotated yeah? and and um, for everyone who's listening we are not talking about randomly firing people or someone who's wearing like a like a ugly shirt and now you don't want to see them anymore and you fire them that that's not the thing but it it's so toxic to have people who either can't be a productive of the a productive member of the team or don't want to be a productive member of the team but you can't get rid of them because people are not able to fire or relocate them right so re let's call it removing them from this structure 
for everyone's benefit. Yeah, and th this is what what we are talking about here. Yeah, so that's why firing people might be a good thing for everyone involved. That's one of the traps if you think about companies as families. Obviously, a family you can't change. They will stay and you treat everyone, you keep everyone if he fails because he's family. Whereas you think about them as a sports team where everybody wants to play for the best team, obviously, and wants to play on the first line or whatsoever. And if you're not good, obviously, you will not be playing. That's the difference. Yeah, yeah. Um, one point I really want to also add is yes. if you ask as a manager yourself, How do I judge my senior engineer? The first thing you need actually as a company is come to terms. What does it mean to be a junior, intermediate, senior staff engineer? You need a written down letter. You want some guidelines for all the managers so they judge by the same criteria. So what is required actually for which role? Obviously, there are great examples, even open sourced examples like GitLab has their whole um letter open source you can read about the requirements a lot of other companies do it there's a lot about literature so about this level system um, it's it's more common for us companies but most european companies obviously adopt in especially in the it sector stuff coming from the us they are not that fast so it's always like some years behind so but they do and i think having this uh, level and letter system in your company written down is also like a benefit for your company because engineers want to develop they're asking they have a goal right they want to develop and this is giving them a guideline what they need to do if they are unsure how they can become better and like fill out more roles and obviously you will put some A lot of work into this letter because you need to think about okay a staff engineer who's responsible for multiple components or a principal engineer who's responsible for the whole architecture who's kind of architect and driver um what does he need to do so for example he needs to be um we had a discussion in one of my teams there was a really really great engineer who had so many potential and we needed a new tech lead for the team and it was like yeah let's make him here so much potential i was like okay You don't make him first tech lead and then he needs to fill out the role. It's the other way around. He first needs to fill out the role and then he gets a promotion. And this role was coupled with like he's doing architectural proposals. They had this um, either architecture decision records, ADR, um, as a, or like RFC request for comments by open source. They're very similar actually, but he needs to be involved in um, suggesting changes to the architecture. He needs to Uh, mentor junior developers. I want to see that he's uh, taking care of this kind of stuff, of teaching people, maybe doing internal talks or some workshops about specific technology others have worked with. So that's what I want to see. Uh, even if he has a lot of potential, like he can see him doing this in the future, he's not doing it right now. So obviously he's not yet a tech lead or a senior engineer. But this criteria needs to be written down. So a lot of people have them in the mind, but it's not like unified through the whole company. So obviously the requirements for what does a tech lead do? What does a staff engineer do? What does he do outside of coding, right? So for example, um, principal engineer in GitLab is defined as uh, he is an acknowledged industry expert, uh, um, like the one to go to guy uh, for everybody and so on. And uh, he's known throughout the industry, right? Not only in the company, but he has a name. So he's like really well known. And Google even has one rank above, which I guess was a distinguished engineer. So when you're working for <laughs> Google, the distinguished engineer is the most prestigious role you can actually have and you will earn so much money. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very nice. So let's, let's try to sum up um, this session with some... Yeah, in German we say Kernaussagen, yeah, the, the bullet points of knowledge that you should take away after listening to this podcast. And the, the first thing that I want to put onto this list is uh, soft skills are everything. Yeah, And um, this means, and this is so important for all the recruiters out there, the number of programming languages or numbers of lines of code are not the deciding factors of uh, being a successful engineer. The soft skills are the things that uh, bring you forward. So soft skills are everything, are my first bullet point uh, as, as a takeaway for judging developers. 
My second bullet point would be it depends on your culture. So obviously you need to write down what the different roles um, contain in your company. What is your company culture? What do you strive for? Autonomy or technical excellence? So it's different for every company. You can see a pattern, who gets promoted, and you can see, okay, we have different roles, but maybe um, formalize this, write it down, because every company is different and works different. Okay, very good, very good. I would put onto the list um, that performance works inwards and outwards. So performance in terms of your mindset, um, are you, are you uh, driven for automation and tooling and uh, um, ha have like this maturity in this direction? Are you able to ask for help? Um, are you focusing on, on business value, but also outwards, interconnecting with your team, making sure that the team is actually performing? And, and so this is this in this um, 360 degree performance that is actually making you indispensable yeah and using the word indispensable not in terms of hijacking the code but actually becoming a really valuable member of the team and the company inwards and outwards and another point i would put on the list as number four is try to decouple the review of your engineer from the salary he will get because the review is for him it's like giving him feedback helping him grow helping him become more valuable for the company and the other thing is the salary if you're going by like the book drive um, then this is like a hygiene factor it needs to be right and if you do it wrong it can be demotivating even somebody getting a five percent raise could be demotivated so think about in terms of salary about his personal market, how much could you earn another company? And that's like what you should get. Maybe you go by average, that's a, totally okay. You go by 5% over average or whatever, whatever works for you and for your company size, but try to decouple it. The review, like the performance review is to help him grow and maybe for yourself to judge him if you can, um, if you do the keeper test, if you would really do everything to keep him, if he's so valuable for the company or if it may be better if he even goes. And number five is listen to the next episode of the Innovation Engineer podcast where we talk about drive. And um, I'm not um, I'm not kidding if I'm when I'm saying that the book Drive or the philosophy of Drive is one of the most valuable things that I took. Which, on the one hand, is kind of a cheap lesson to learn, but it's so powerful to reflect on what is driving you forward and what distinguishes you as a, a software engineer or a creative person from someone standing in a factory working on an assembly line, right? So drive is really something to understand yourself and understand um, the way other people are motivated in whatever they are doing, whatever they are trying to achieve. And understanding this, this principle really helps you understanding how teams and companies are working or sometimes also why dysfunctional teams are as dysfunctional as they are because everyone is driven by drive. <laughs> That's a weird thing to say, yeah, but very, very important. So come back to the next episode of the Innovation Engineer podcast. Next week on the same spot at the same time. And remember, a lot of stuff we said today is actually the practical stuff taken, uh, taken from drive and applied to a real company. So the stuff we said today is mostly the application of the philosophy from Drive. Exactly. So what do you think? Leave us a comment. Um, I am so interested to learn about um, what you take away from our input and where you disagree. Because everything that we here uh, collect here are like our personal um, uh, learnings and uh, our points of view from the last decades of work in this industry but i'm very very curious to to learn what you think or what other perspectives uh, you have so don't be shy leave us a comment see you next week bye see you next week bye
Thanks so much for listening to the Innovation Engineer podcast. If you take any value from our content, please make sure to rate us wherever you're listening right now. All articles, products, and references we discussed in this episode will be linked in the show notes. Some of the links we provide are affiliate links that generate a small commission for us without costing you extra. Any support is highly appreciated and helps us keep this podcast alive. Visit theinnovationengineer.com to find more content about software engineering, innovation, and the hottest trends in tech today. Stay awesome.